So I'd like to begin by leaving you with a thought this morning, which for many people probably would seem like a very obvious one, but at the same time is one which is perhaps not so obvious. Salvation is personal. Now that doesn't seem like any great insight, obviously, because most people would say, well, of course, salvation is personal. Salvation absolutely pertains to us individually or personally. But that being said, for many people throughout what we might call Christendom, without, throughout Christianity today, that is not so much the case. Rather, what God does so oftentimes is he makes men savable. But my contention this morning is this, that salvation or the salvation of man or of woman is not abstract. It is an intimate personal action by God on, those, on behalf of those called in him. What God does in the salvation of a sinner, a rebel against his will, is the single greatest miracle that one could ever hope to partake of. Now, some might call the creation miraculous, and it is. However, what is an even greater miracle is that the one who made the stars, the one who sets the times and the habitations of men, the one who says to the oceans, you may come this far and no farther, that one has so stooped down to offer the olive branch of peace to his wayward creation. He has chosen, counseled within himself before the world was to save a people for himself that had no right or reason to presume upon his mercy. We are debtors to this mercy this morning. I think we often need to be reminded of that fact. So oftentimes it's so very easy to begin to presume upon that, which at this point for many of us may have first become apparent upon our minds years ago, maybe decades ago, when God first saved your soul, when God first alighted upon you, when God first convicted you of your sin, when God first drew you to himself, when God first made it known and apparent and aware that you were a sinner that was in desperate need of a Savior, and that apart from that, you were certainly to perish and to die. And then when you were freed from that, when that was lifted from you, when that was taken away, and then you were given that freedom, that liberty, that feeling when the weight of sin has been lifted off your shoulders and you are made aware of the fact that you have been freed from that sin, that the chains have been thrown from you, that you have been set free. That freedom, that liberty, that reality of the situation from when you go to utter darkness and despair and hopelessness to light and hope and peace which has no end and cannot ever be quenched, that is the reality of the situation. That is the single greatest miracle that anyone could hope to experience personally in their life. Now, the scriptures are replete with miracles, miraculous things, miraculous signs, and miraculous wonders, wonders that our Lord performed, wonders that we see in the Old Testament, mighty and incredible works where God saved his people, where he delivered his people from destruction. We have the story of Gideon when he saved the people with 300 men, we have the story of Jonah, where Jonah wanders away from God, and he runs off seeking to escape, and ultimately is swallowed by a fish, and spat up on the shore, and sent back to do God's bidding. There are miracles in the Bible, no doubt. There are incredible things, and of course, as I said, the crowning miracle of all things is the miracle of existence to begin with, because by all means, this is in no way a guaranteed thing. This is something we so often presume upon, but... How miraculous is it that we are here? How miraculous is it that there's something rather than nothing? That there is an existence at all? That there is being rather than beinglessness? That there is something here to hold of? And most of all, how miraculous is it that rebels and sinners, those who have so trampled upon the love and the mercy of God, such, in such a way that they merited absolute destruction and death even at the beginning. When our parents fell, when Adam and Eve fell, the immediate consequence of that 
should have been their death and destruction outright. And the Lord was merciful to Adam and Eve. He was merciful in the sense that he clothed their nakedness. He took animal skins, which implies the fact that at the very beginning, there was a life that was taken, an animal that was slain on the behalf of those fallen people. And he clothed them and he lifted them up from the dirt. And though he sent them away from the garden, he still cared for them. He provided for them. They were not destitute holy. So the Lord was merciful to to them. And the Lord has been incredibly merciful throughout human history. And he's abided many, many things. We see in the story of the scriptures an unveiling of the fact that man, according to his Adamic nature, according to that nature that was carried to us by our father Adam, has rebelled consistently time and time again against the holiness of God. And, it, and the Lord has been patient, and he has endured, and he has weathered the storm of the rebellion and the thumbing of the nose by his creation, and even to the point where his patience has ran out and he has destroyed his creation. He's destroyed it by water. And yet, he showed mercy upon Moses and upon his family and did not destroy utterly, but rather made a way of escape. He formed for them an ark. Yes, Moses built the ark, but the Lord ultimately provided the ark. And the ark which he gave was the ark that is Christ. And the reality of the situation is that we have in no way really progressed from where we were then. We are as wretched and debased as we ever were. And yet, in spite of that fact, in spite of our sinfulness and our rebellion, everything like that, the Lord has been merciful to us. The Lord has been merciful to me. The Lord has been merciful to you. That's something we cannot presume upon. But thankfully, he has chosen to do this for us. So we are debtors to his mercy. I think we often need to understand that. I need to emphasize the point that it is not as if God simply decided he was going to make men savable. It's not as if he sought to make a way for you, and either you take it or you don't. No, if he had done that, you would have been lost. If your salvation rested in your hands this day, you would lose it, I can assure you. But thanks be to God He did not simply determine to make you savable. He chose to save you if you are in him this morning. He sought you out personally. He convicted you personally. He paid your sin personally. He bore your wrath that was owed by you personally. All of these things were done on your behalf by your Lord. And they were done because not because of who you were, but in spite of who you were. They were done not according to your own strength or effort, but rather in spite of the best you could offer. It is an amazing thing, the work of the Lord in the salvation of the elect. There are, of course, labors in this. There were and are the Pauls and the Apollos. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6-7, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. The way the Lord operates is mysterious. It's beyond our understanding at times. He moves when and where he wills. As Christ says to Nicodemus, the wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit of God. It is a mysterious thing. Something we cannot distill into some sort of formula, although men have tried. Men have tried to take this, which is a divine supernatural of God, and they have sought to create plans. They've sought to make a certain 10-step model or a 5-step model or a 2-step model or whatever. There's been many different methodologies that have been put forward, many different ideas and concepts that have been floated about as ways to bring men in as sort of surefire methods to 
try to hook them in and draw them. Take that fishers of men concept quite literally. But of course, if we understand the idea of a fisher of men, we recognize if you've ever been fishing, you know, you can throw your line out. You can spend all day on the bank, but you may not get anything. And then some days you may throw it out, and you can't help but catch fish. But the fisherman doesn't bring the fish to him. The fisherman isn't the one who ultimately causes the fish to bite. Rather, it is the one who sends the fish to the fisherman's way. It is the Lord himself. The Lord is responsible, and I would say this for all those sportsmen out there, if you like fishing like, you, like I do, that you recognize that your best catch is ultimately according to the providence of God. And the same thing is true when it comes to the salvation of men. And though we are called to be fishers of men, although we are called to labor as Paul and Apollos, we must recognize that it is not our work, it is not our effort, ultimately, that saves men. We are called to go out there, we are called to reach them. Nevertheless, ultimately, this is the sovereign work of God. I wish to bring us to a very familiar passage this morning. I considered continuing on in Mark, but ultimately I decided I think this may be more needful, perhaps more profitable at this time. So Ephesians chapter 1, very familiar passage of Scripture. We'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. But I would like to make an emphasis on Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. And so the Apostle Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Having predestined us to adoption according to the by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have the redemption through his blood, by the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made us abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Now, I think it must first be understood when we talk about such things, and this is an important passage, it's a vital passage, it is a precious passage that our Lord has given us. But it must be understood that the work of Christ upon the cross, above all things, is a free and gracious act on the part of the triune God. This was an act of free grace. It was a personal action. There was a recipient that Christ had in mind when he made his offering upon the tree. It was for a people that Christ gave his life. It was the love of the Father that he had planned from all eternity, the glorious salvation of a people, a new Jerusalem, a kingdom that would have no end. John declares that the people of God are those whose names are written in the book of the life 
of the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Paul speaks of this glorious unfolding plan of salvation for the people of God. He uses similar language in Ephesians 1, 3-4, which we have seen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame in love. And it is with this language that Paul declares for us the truth that we are in fact part of an incredible plan which began before the world began in the secret council between the Father and the Son in which the Father had determined to provide for us, for his son, a bride. Much as Abraham would choose a bride for his son. And beloved, we are the beneficiaries of that plan. Christ was ordained to die upon the cross in order that we might be saved, blessed with all spiritual blessing in him. Christ was given by the Father for the sake of those justified. And what greater love could man ever hope for than this from a holy God? What better hope could we look to when we really consider the words of Paul when he says, of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5:21 for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him in that verse we see the clear nature of exchange there is an exchange that is made between the main players here and we have three God the son and the elect God makes the son sin for us the elect Christ who knew no sin who was the one perfect and complete offering, who never knew any wrong, and in whom was no guile, that one was made to be sin. And it would seem a crime that one who was so perfect and righteous should in their stead become the very sin of the most vile and wretched of people, and yet that is what God himself had ordained before the ages began to do. For there is truly nothing we can say here in the sinner that Christ justifies, that merits his justification. There are no redeeming qualities about them. There are no inner virtues. Not only do they not merit mercy, but they also truly merit wrath and judgment for sin. But that is the essence of the love that the Father has for us. And the Son has for us. That in spite of the fact that we do not deserve the love and the offering of the Son... He bestows upon us his love and grants us that love so that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. Thus the divine transaction is made. His righteousness for our sin. His suffering for our life. We must stress the fact that this is something that is not given for anything in the object of this love itself. Those justified by God are not anything meritorious or special in themselves. At the same time, we we know there are many outside of the love and grace of God, and many who will inevitably die outside of his grace and end in judgment. But to those who are perishing, we may never boast as those justified, because we are not better. There is nothing in us that makes us more worthy There is nothing in us that God sees anything different from those others. What separates us then, some may ask, from those that are perishing? What is the difference? Why would one perish and another live? The answer to that is found in the words of John 3.16. God so loved. Because God so loved us and he gave his son for us, we are justified in his sight. And that's it. Nothing else. There is nothing else you can add there. There is nothing else. There is a period and an end, and that is it. He has set his love upon us. That is the exclusion, and it is to the exclusion of any boasting. No man may boast that he, by his own work or merit, has earned the right to be justified, but is solely justified according to the mercy which God freely bestows. This mercy is something which we might rightly call free grace. 
It is in the free sense that there is nothing that the one who avails himself of it can ever hope to merit it. He cannot buy it. He cannot labor long enough to pay the levy upon it. His best efforts and all his exertions he will in end turn up empty. Though he may run the race for a thousand years if it were given so long, he would find himself no closer to earning his redemption than when he began. He is incapable of in any way paying the debt which he owes. No one may presume upon this. And we also see, second, that free grace is free because we must remember that it is totally free on the part of God to bestow that grace. No one may offer any complaint if grace is not given. Many would assume that there is some injustice on the part of God if he does not offer grace equally to all men. But the truth is that all men are equally condemned before God. And so thus, God has every right to equally condemn all men to the same fate. He has the right to condemn all men where they justly deserve death and destruction and eternal finality in hell. But rather than that, what he has done is he has chosen to save a people for himself. And do we truly understand that? In some ways I do, but in many ways I don't understand that. I don't understand why he would choose someone like me. I don't understand why he would choose uh, the people here present today. You know, I have people in my life that don't trust in Christ. I pray that they will. But I also recognize that it's going to be God ultimately who must draw them to himself. I can plead, I can reason, I can offer whatever I can on their behalf. I can pray. There are many things I can do. But ultimately, the one who is responsible for their salvation is the Lord himself. He must draw them to himself. I cannot. And so in that way, there's a sense in which you know, we, we may labor and understand that in the end, that labor may come to naught in some sense, but we also must realize that our labors and efforts never come back void. And that's why I always emphasize the word of God never returns void. It always accomplishes that exactly for which it was intended to accomplish. So when we preach the word of God, when we minister on the street corner, when we engage in one-on-one evangelism, whatever we may choose to do in those situations, that which we give never returns void. It never turns up empty. It always accomplishes that which it was intended to accomplish. Now, the intention of that may not be always the same. The result may be different. For some, it may soften the heart unto life, and for others, it may harden the the heart unto death and greater judgment. Nevertheless, the word of God is always accomplishing that which it was intended to accomplish. So then ultimately, we must understand that the grace of God, the mercy of God, is that which God can provide and get, which God can provide alone, wholly at His description. We cannot coerce Him, or cajole Him, or weary Him into accomplishing other than that which His will intends. Now, that's not to say that we should not seek Him out in prayer, because we should, because we must recognize that we don't understand. God's ultimate intention for all things. But what it is to say is we must rest in this simple reality. God is sovereign, and God is sovereign over the salvation of men. So what we can see here is that if someone is given this grace, it is not because of anything in them. If we consider the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 3.26, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. By offering Christ as a propitiation for sin, God can reconcile sinners who deserve rightly condemnation. No one may merit a right standing before God. No human being is capable of being inherently righteous as some would contend. The burden of Scripture is that no one can be just in his sight, nor are they willing. 
For Paul, in the same chapter, looks to the Psalms, which say, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. The indictment of the scripture is that there is no one who is righteous, no one who seeks after God, and no one at all who merits his love. And thus it is necessary for a just God to mete out justice upon such unrighteousness. But the miracle of the cross of Christ is that by the sacrifice of Christ and him taking the unrighteousness of sinners upon himself and which and ultimately the perfect righteousness of Christ is placed upon their account, that action is the way by which the righteousness of God is manifested. By this transaction, God can maintain his perfect justice and also have mercy upon those he bestows his grace. This way, God can truly be called just and the justifier of the believer. Now, the reconciliation of those two things the desire of God to show mercy and the perfect justice of God are maintained and they are fulfilled in the cross. I mean, I think we oftentimes overlook this fact. I mean, how can God ultimately be maintain his justice and at the same time be merciful when everybody equally deserves justice? Now, some might say, and some might argue, well, God can simply just overlook the sin. He can simply say, I'm just not going to consider it. But if we really think about that, is that just of him? I mean, in some sense, we might think of a human judge for a second and consider for a moment a judge brings someone before them and they hear the charge, they understand this person is justly condemned, this person justly deserves the sentence that they are carried out. Now, that judge may, in his estimation, He may take into account certain things, and he may say, I'm not going to render the sentence. I am not going to offer that justice in this case. I am going to offer mercy. Now, the judge may do that. It's true. But the question is, is that judge still just, truly? We might call him merciful, but nevertheless, the law has been broken. There's no contention here that the law was not that the violation was not made, that the offense was not committed. This person, there's no doubt in this situation, this person has committed the crime, this person has done that which which has been said, and there is a certain requirement for what must be paid as a result of that. So that person must, if justice is truly to be done, must pay. So one cannot simply say that a judge who then chooses for whatever reason, whatever justification he can make to say we're going to just throw this out and overlook it for him to say that that just that judge is just because it's not and we can take this to the higher level which is God himself God is the perfect judge God is the judge of all the earth and what his judgments are are perfect and the unfortunate reality for those of us who have offended such a holy God which is all of us is that he is a perfect judge. And that means that he must offer perfect justice. And that justice includes destruction and final dissolution in eternal punishment. So with that being on the case, how is God to be both just and justifier? He must maintain his justice somehow. And the answer is pretty simple. The debt must be paid. It has to be paid by someone. And ultimately, there was only one who was truly capable of doing that, and that was Christ himself. So in the cross of Christ, we find that reconciliation of those two things. The desire of God, in which he was willing to show mercy to some, and yet maintain his perfect justice, So they are fulfilled together in the cross. And so Paul concludes, if God is the just justifier of all the believers, it is not according to the works of those believers. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? 
nay, but by the law of faith. The clear conclusion Paul draws, and we should draw as a result, is that the works of the law will not justify anyone, that any effort a person may offer will never be able to satisfy the perfect justice of God. There will be none that boasts in their own righteousness, but rather anyone that is justified will boast in the righteousness of Christ and the grace of God. And that, of course, is the contention of the author of Hebrews when he juxtaposes the dichotomy between the old covenant sacrifices in the temple and the sacrifices of Christ himself upon the cross. The point he makes is that the sacrifices in the temple were insufficient. Hebrews 10.4 For it is not possible, he says, that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. So the author of Hebrews tells us, the blood of bulls and goats cannot remove sin. Now that at first seems somewhat blasphemous to the Lord himself, Yahweh commanded the sacrifices in the tabernacle and later in the temple. Those were commanded by God and instituted with the entire priesthood devoted to the execution of those sacrifices. For if those sacrifices have no power, why then would the Lord strike Nadab and Abihu dead for placing strange offerings? fire upon the altar of the Lord. How can the altar be truly sanctified by the sacrifices laid upon the altar and mean nothing and have no power? How, we must ask, can this man dare to say that all the temple sacrifices were empty and had no power? But the answer is clear. Hebrews 10, 14, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. What the author of Hebrews contends is that Though the sacrifices of the Old Covenant could not save, those sacrifices were a typology, a symbol that signified the coming of the one who, by the offering of himself once, was able to bring salvation to all that believe. So then, the sacrifices of the Old Covenant are not empty, but are given flesh and vitality because they are grounded and fulfilled by the sacrifice of the Son of God. It is not the sacrifices themselves that inherently had meaning, but they were pointing to the perfect sacrifice of the Son of Man. And by his sacrifice upon the cross, he fully satisfied the sins of those that are justified. And that not only those that are justified now, or those that were justified in his day, but those that were justified in the old covenant as well. All men, everywhere, from the beginning to the end of time, are saved, are justified according to the gracious act of Christ in time. Now, is that an incredible and almost seemingly impossible thing to some people's minds? Probably. But the reality is, Christ died in time, and yet at the same time, Christ died before the world began. Christ gave an offering before the world was, and at the same time, it was necessary that he die in time. And yet that was fulfilling for all men, in one way, in one shape, in one form, for all men, their justification. Peter tells us, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. And Peter's point is that it is not corruptible things, such as silver and gold. It is not the tithes and the offerings. It is not the offering of blood and bulls and goats that satisfies the wrath of God and secures the redemption of the justified. Those, rather, that are justified are justified by the precious blood of Christ, the one true sacrifice fully able to accomplish and secure a perfect redemption and one that would never have to be made again. Bulls and goats would be slain again and again. The Son of Man gave himself once, and that one sacrifice was sufficient for all time. The suffering and the death of the cross secures us redemption. That is a hard thing to truly grasp and to consider. Let us really ponder. There, there is one who so loved us that he gave everything to die on our behalf. And not only to die on our behalf, but to die the most gruesome and agonizing way possible. 
The prophet Isaiah said of him in Isaiah 53, 5 through 6, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The agony that Christ endures is captured with poignant clarity when he identifies Christ enduring that which rightfully should fall on us whom he loves. By his stripes we are healed. That which rightly, rightly should fall upon us falls upon him. That which he rightfully deserves is lavished upon us. The pain of the cross and the suffering of Christ epitomized in those words that were recorded and we read in Mark 15, 34. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Christ here quotes Psalm 22, 1, and in doing so, gives us a picture of the reality of his sacrifice. It is not the nails of the cross that slew the Son of Man. It is not the instrument of torture or the lashings or the dehydration or the shock. It is the separation, the chasm at that moment that existed between the Father and the Son as the wrath of God fell upon Christ. The Lord crushed the Son of Man. The Lord has placed upon the Lamb the sins of us all. And by suffering and death, he has ended them so that we are set free. It is as if we were facing the inevitable arrival of our own doom, the certain death of a sweeping tsunami barreling down on top of us, completely and totally unable to unstop it or to run away. And as we face the inescapable deluge of certain death, one stands between us and that unstoppable force, and by sacrificing himself, by putting himself in the way of that destruction, he saves us from it. And that is what Christ has done for us. Christ has taken upon us a penalty we justly deserved and could not overcome or escape and satisfied fully the penalty due to us. By his sacrifice, he makes, an, as indicated by the Westminster Confession, a proper, real, and full satisfaction of his Father's justice in their behalf. And so what is the conclusion? And what is the point? By the cross, Christ has really paid for our sins. He has completely and fully satisfied the requirements of God's justice. God is not overlooking sin, but he is looking upon that sin placed upon Christ, and he is pouring out the wrath against that sin upon his own beloved Son, and the Son is taking the punishment fully and completely upon himself so that the one justified need never fear retribution for his sin. He need never wonder if his sin is paid. He need never worry if, he, if when he sins, it will be required of him. For the Son has paid the cost of every sin with his blood. And this is the pure manifestation of the words of John. Now so famous all over the world, it's one of the most common verses that has ever been quoted. You hear it all the time, but it's so oftentimes quoted out of context and quoted without any true grasp or understanding of what is being said. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Because God loved in such an extravagant manner that which did not deserve his love, he sent one that he loved and held dearer than all else and surrendered him up to the torture stake to die upon the tree so that those believing in him would never, ever perish. Nothing would ever be able to destroy them or to condemn them. No charge would ever again be laid to their account. No accuser would ever come to lay any slander before them. They would never face condemnation, but rather they would have eternal life by the Son and His precious blood. Now the other point here is that the Lord is 
sovereign in the act of salvation. He is the author, and he predestines whom he wills unto life. The Apostle Paul declares in Ephesians 1, 5-6, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved. First, Christ eternally had died for the elect according to the will and decree of the Father. The scripture is clear that God, from the very beginning of time, decreed the justification of all who would believe, namely the elect. One thing we have hopefully established at this point is that all things in creation have been or will be brought about to pass according to God's decree which he declared and promoted before the world began. Let's remember Isaiah 46, verses 19 through 19 to 20. I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executed my counsel from a far country, Yea, I have spoken it, I will also bring it about to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. The Lord is sovereign over everything that happens. Every event and every purpose accomplished according to his divine purpose. For it is clear the end is declared from the beginning. Everything that happens in time happens according to the will and the purpose of God. This applies truly to all things, and even the justification of the believer is ordained according to this divine, eternal decree. Paul tells us in Galatians 3.8, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all the nations be blessed. What's interesting to note about what Paul is saying here is that God seeing the ultimate end of justification for all the nations of the earth, begins by giving the gospel unto Abraham. Paul describes this gospel as God's promise to Abraham. In thee shall all the nations be blessed. This promise given to Abraham, which he believed, was that which was counted unto Abraham for righteousness. So in that promise, Abraham was justified by faith. And that promise heralded the coming justification of all the nations of the earth. So there is a continuity, we might say, of justification. From the very beginning in Genesis to the end of Revelation. In Revelation, we see the full fruition of the promise made to Abraham when John declares in Revelation 7-9, And this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Here we see a picture of the numberless people from every nation and tribe and tongue across all ages and the world, gathered around the throne, worshiping God. We see the fulfillment of what God promised in Isaiah 46, the fulfillment of all His good pleasure from the beginning to the end. All of this was according to the Scriptures and the sovereign decree of God. It's as Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1-2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. He addresses the believers as those which are elect according to the foreknowledge of God, and were thus decreed by God to inherit His justification. So then we understand clearly that the justification of us by God is something which was accomplished and determined before the foundation of the world and brought about without fail according to the decree of God. And we then must also understand there is an exclusivity to the predestination of God. God does not make all men savable. He instead saves a people, a people he has ordained to life before the foundation of the world. Therefore, since there are many men who are not saved and ultimately will not be saved, 
This means that the Lord does exclude some men from life. This is an entirely biblical truth. God opens the means that the Lord does exclude some men from life. He opens the eyes of the elect, yet for those outside of his fold, he blinds and hardens them. In many circumstances, God hardens wicked men and blinds them to the truth in order that they serve his end in their destruction. And this is, of course, for many, a concept that many do not like to accept. The concept that God does blind and harden men. The common understanding in most contemporary Christian circles is that God, in fact, is attempting to make all men see the truth. But while that is certainly a much more comforting conclusion for us, what does the Scripture teach? Have we considered Pharaoh? Exodus 7, 2-5. Thou shalt speak all that I command thee, and Aaron thy brother shall speak unto Pharaoh, that he send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that I may lay my hand upon Egypt, and bring forth mine armies and my children, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch forth my hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among men. So Moses and Aaron are commissioned by God to go to Pharaoh to demand that he release the children of Israel. But God has expressed to Moses and Pharaoh, he is not going to listen. He will not hear them. He will resist the Lord's command to release them. And why does this occur? God is clear that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh will not hearken to them, and the reason he will not is because God hardens his heart so that he will not listen. Now, it is also true, and we can also say, again, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. That is as much true. The scripture says both. It says that Pharaoh hardens his heart, yet it also says that the Lord hardens his heart. But one thing we must understand is that the, ultimately all things, everything that happens in creation and all things that happen within the confines of that which he has made all stems from God's divine ordered decree, as Isaiah 46 says. So the purpose here is clear. God is hardening his heart so that he will rebel and the Lord can show his might in punishing Egypt. In afflicting the country with the plagues, in displaying his full splendor and his glory, and in putting the shame to the the gods of Egypt. In short, God withholds his grace from men, and that is something that is naturally part of the decree of God. Out of a modernized concept of fairness and equality, we determine that God is in some way obligated to offer all men his grace without distinction. Nevertheless, we in our presumption forget that he is in no way compelled to offer grace to anyone. By definition, grace is unmerited favor. Because it is unmerited, it can in no way be obligated to be provided by the one offering such grace. God himself is not obligated to offer grace. As he declares in Exodus thirty-three nineteen, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before me, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will have mercy. God is not under any compulsion to show mercy upon anyone. If he showed mercy on no one, he would be just in condemning all men. But he does not choose to show no mercy. He shows mercy upon whom he decides to show mercy. And the one who partakes of his grace and those whom he restricts from that mercy are entirely upon his divine will and prerogative. As John indicates in John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. It is those that receive Christ that have been granted the power. The Greek word here meaning right or authority, to become sons of God. But how does one receive him? The verse clarifies even or more aptly, especially to those who believe. The ones believing receive him, 
And the ones that receive are granted authority to become the sons of God, to be justified in his sight. Faith becomes the necessary requirement for a person to be justified, to be considered righteous before God. Just as Ephesians 2, 8-9 through 9 tells us, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Paul is clear. We are saved by grace through faith. And I would emphasize here that neither of those things ultimately come from us, but rather they are both the gifts of God. Some people want to separate that and say that it's only the grace that is the gift, that faith is something that we exercise. But I would emphasize this day that if you believe, if you have faith, that in and of itself is a gift that has been given to you, granted to you according to the will of God. That is done to the exclusion of any boasting upon the behalf of the creature, as the creature can do nothing to make himself right before God, and is at the mercy of God to bestow upon him both grace to be saved and faith to receive it. This has been the consistent reform position, which is to say that justification, the way in which men are made righteous, and are therefore able to inherit eternal life, is accompanied or accomplished solely by God, effectually wrought in the life of the believer by faith, which he gives and secured by the work of his Son, who both takes upon himself the sin of the believer, thereby pardoning it and transferring his perfect righteousness to the account of the one that believes." And so to take all of this and put it into, I guess, a word of application then. For the one who has been made a partaker of the grace of God, it is a truly precious gift which has been given. If we are in Christ today, may we understand that truly this is the work of God in us. We have no merit by which we could hope to please him. There is nothing about us that is worthy or excellent, or worthwhile. Rather, we are solely and radically the products of the grace of God. He has seen us, and he has known us. He knew us before the foundation of the world. The act of God in saving us is not one which is impersonal. It is not arbitrary. My brethren, he did not merely make you savable. He did not see you struggling in the midst of the sea and pull you out. He found you buried in the pit and drew you out and breathed life into your nostrils. It was as if we were like in the valley of the dry bones, which Ezekiel saw. The Lord set him before the bones and said, Son of man, can these bones live? To which Ezekiel could only reply, O Lord God, thou knowest. Only you can know God. And God foresaw our salvation before the foundation of the world. He has won a people for himself in the intercessory work of Christ. As Paul declares in Romans 8, 29-30, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. He sought us out before we were born. He set us apart before the world was. He knows his people. Before they were formed in the womb, they were known, as the Lord says by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. And I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. He knows you by name. He has chosen you if you are in him. He has set you apart for a purpose. But this should not be a point that should inspire arrogance or pride. Rather, it should be a point that inspires awe and wonder, and most of all, humility. There are too many men and women smug in their theology. Too many who are puffed up with pride in their election, in the superiority of their understanding, and the self-assuredness in the rightness of their opinions. My brethren, if there was ever a people of the earth that should be humble, it should be those that are convinced of the sovereignty of God. Ours is a position which should strip away all pride, all smugness, and all arrogance. 
For we of all people shall be keenly aware that we are partakers of his grace, and that grace is a free offering and a gift to us. Unfortunately, that's just not always the case. I mean, some of the most arrogant people you can run across sometimes are those people who we'd call Calvinists. And that's an unfortunate reality of the situation. And I pray that if there's ever a point to where that ugly root of arrogance stems up in any of our hearts, that we would cut that down. Because the fact of the matter is that God has not called arrogant, prideful men. The election of God is that which should inspire humility. It should inspire nothing but wonder and recognizing, I don't even know how I'm saved at all. I don't understand how I am the one that God has chosen when he has passed over so many others. It's not because of anything in us. I can assure you of that. It's not because we had greater understanding of the word. It's not because we were more perceptive, not because we were more righteous. In truth, we possess none of those things. And we stand to remind ourselves of the words of Paul when he says to the Corinthians, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised God hath chosen. Yea, the things which are not to bring to naught the things that are. And no flesh should glory in his presence. So what's Paul's point? The point he wants us to understand is that We are not great. I know he's talking to the Corinthians, but he speaks through the Corinthians to us, and he says, consider this, brethren, the fact that the reality of the situation is your election actually means that you're nothing. Your election actually means that you are less than what is outside of the fold of God, that in many ways you are the foolish things of the world, that you are the things that are nothing, you are the things that are lowly, you are the things that are debased. That is the reason God has chosen you. And the reason he has chosen that which is nothing is for what purpose? To put to nothing and to confound the things that are so that ultimately all will say, let he that glorieth, let him glorify in the Lord. So the point ultimately is that God has saved us. And if he has saved us, he has saved us solely for the fact that we are to point men to the simple reality that Christ is all. That the only thing worth glory in is God himself. God has taken the weak things to confound the mighty. God has taken the foolish to put to shame the wise. God has chosen that which is nothing to work through in order that he might make his name great. It is much like we saw in the story of Gideon. Gideon faced an immense army. The forces he had, by all human standards, were insufficient. They were no match for the forces of the Midianites. And they had no hope of victory. But the Lord's call to Gideon was to reduce his numbers. He already was at a a disadvantage. He had less less forces. He was outmanned and outmatched. And yet the Lord tells him, you've got too many people. You've got too much, Gideon. And so in Judges 7, we read, And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. For the glory of the Lord, the numbers of the Israelites will be whittled down to basically nothing. The Lord reserved 300 men for the battle against the Midianites and delivered them into their hands. The same is true of the church. God has taken a force that, by all human standards, is insufficient for the task that we have been given. I mean, just think about the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6.12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Consider, brethren, for a second, that you are the force that God has arrayed against that. 
We are compassed about by many enemies. We are not merely facing the forces of this world. We have seen tangibly the example of that in our day. We are seeing churches. We've seen them forced closed and pastors arrested for holding church services. These are things which we have witnessed, but more than that, there are brothers and sisters all around the world who are persecuted, who are dying for faith in Jesus Christ, who are being arrested and tortured and killed for the faith. But looking beyond the externalities which we see with our eyes, our greatest enemies are not those which are visible. Beyond those enemies which we are seeing lie a whole host of powerful spiritual forces arranged against us. The very rulers of darkness in this world are arrayed in battle against us. And yet, in spite of how great the enemy may seem or appear, He is not a match for the Lord. There is no enemy that shall stand against him. Thus Paul can say in Romans 8.31, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? For in another place Paul tells us that Christ is raised, and because he is raised, all enemies, all powers, and all authority are and will be defeated by him. 1 Corinthians 15, 24-26, Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, and he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign, till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Thus Paul assures us, Christ reigns. He is set on the right hand of the Most High. And he is fulfilled and is fulfilling that which was declared by the psalmist in Psalm 110.1. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. All enemies will be overcome. Even death itself cannot stand against him. It is as as the psalmist declares in Psalm 2. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak Unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Our hope, most of all, stands in the hope that we are in Christ. And if we are in Christ, then we are accepted as Christ is accepted. For the Lord said to Christ, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. The inescapable reality is that Christ loves us. Because he loves us, he gave himself for us. And in so doing, he made us acceptable to the Father, that that we might be adopted and welcomed as sons. We are accepted because of his acceptable offering As Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.15, seeing that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Perhaps there is someone doubting this morning. Perhaps there is someone hurting. Perhaps someone may be fixated upon their sins and on the brink of hopelessness as they find themselves inadequate. I don't know and I can't know all the trials and the hardships that afflict every heart gathered here this morning. In the end, only the Lord himself knows that. But I can assure you of one thing. If you look around you and what you see leaves you doubting or hurting or hopeless or scared, then it is time to shift your eyes. You find yourself looking around and what you see leaves you defeated, you are looking in the wrong direction. Lift up your eyes to the one from whom comes your help. Look to Christ. He is like the brazen serpent lifted in the wilderness, lifted up before you today. Look to him and live. Perhaps you may not be able to manage the strength to crawl, let alone walk to him. But in truth, the only strength that you need is simply the strength to look to him. Look to Christ and live. Look to him as your only hope. I have to say I was 
don't know if I was, uh, I had to tell somebody this week, you know, you may be a little disappointed in the answer I give you because ultimately the answer I give you is going to be essentially the same. It is going to be to look to Christ. If you're looking for another answer, I'm afraid I don't have much for you. I don't have much other in the way of options for you. I don't have some five-step or ten-step plan on how to set your life straight or how to get things together or how to solve your problems. In many cases, we just don't have that. We want that. We desperately need that oftentimes, but we don't have it. The truth is the only answer I can give you is the true answer that will save you and will remake you and will give you hope. And that is the hope in Christ and in Christ only. He is our hope today. He is our only hope. He is the one who will sustain us now and forever. I would just ask you to look to him today. With that, let's close in the word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for allowing us coming at this time to study your word, Lord. I thank you for your loving kindness towards us. I thank you for your graciousness and the fact that you have today chosen a people for yourself. Um, we recognize and we understand we are in no way meriting that which we have been given. We are debtors to your grace. And we owe something which can never be paid, and yet we recognize that you have not asked us to pay. You've asked us to believe. And although it seems like such a strange thing to ask us, you ask us to look to your son to live. And I pray this day that we recognize that that is what we are called to do. Look to Christ and live. Lord, I recognize that he has been lifted up. Son of man has been lifted up much as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. Those that look upon him will see life. Pray that we can just see him and know him for who he is, recognizing that he is the most precious treasure, the most precious gift that anyone could be given. There is no other hope besides him. There is nowhere else to go. There is no other balm in Gilead that might be able to help us in this situation. It is only your son. He is the one that can heal. He is the one that can remake. He is the one that can save. Let us look to him today and let us look to him forevermore. We are just thankful for him who is our captain, who is our prophet, our priest, our king. Jesus Christ today and forever. Amen.